Hello, and welcome to the Loopcast. Today, I have Russell Thomas, uh, the Principal Modeler of Cyber Risk at Risk Management Solutions, and we are discussing why complex systems succeed and why do they fail. So, as you noticed, I'm not Chelsea, I'm Sina. Um, Chelsea is in PhD land right now, so for the next month or so, I will be the one conducting interviews. But otherwise, uh, please welcome our guest, Russell. Hi there. <laughs> so I want to maybe start off with a very basic and generic question, which is, how do we define what a complex system is? Because when I was writing these questions, I found myself sort of devolving to, well, if I see it, then I know it's a complex system. But um, that's kind of eyeballing isn't really the best way to do things. So why don't you start us off with giving us the contours and, and defining what a complex system is? Sure. Uh, the concept of a complex system or more generally a complex adaptive system arises out of complexity science. Uh, the home or the, the birthplace of complexity science is the Santa Fe Institute. I encourage listeners to go to their website. Uh, they've got a lot of good learning resources, um, including the Complexity Explorer um, educational uh, site there. But a complex adaptive system, the easiest way to understand it is how it's different from a complicated system. So think of a complicated system as maybe a big tangled bundle of wires. Uh, I recently unpacked some audio equipment and encountered this complicated system. And it took me probably 45 minutes to untangle all the wires because I didn't pack them up very neatly. But what makes a bundle of wires complicated are all the knots, right? Things are looped together and they're tied together and you can't just pull on the loop and get it untangled. But the wires themselves form relatively simple loops and the overall tangle is not that different than just a mass of simple loops. So while it's complicated, it does not fit the characteristics of what Santa Fe Institute calls complex adaptive systems. So in complex adaptive systems, uh, and I'm reading from the Wikipedia page. This is a, a fine resource for your listeners. Uh, it's got a large number of elements. The interactions between those elements are relatively rich, and the interactions are nonlinear. And what that means is simply small changes can lead to big consequences in any interaction. And while the interactions are local, some of those interactions collectively can lead to emergent behavior. So what appears at a global or macro level is not immediately uh, derived from or interpretable from what's happening at a local micro level. And that's where the adaptive part comes in. Uh, the overall system behavior, uh, and one example is sort of uh, birds flocking or schools of fish forming in a larger formation. You can look what e at each individual bird is doing and how it's adjusting to its neighbors, but that doesn't tell you what the overall shape of the flock is going to be or where the flock is going to go, whether the flock is going to split into two or the two flocks are going to come back together as one. Uh, a couple of other key characteristics is uh, 
usually complex adaptive systems are not operating close to their equilibrium point. And by equilibrium point, think of a thermostat. You make a small adjustment in the room temperature, the thermostat kicks in and brings it back to the set point. Uh, lots of mechanical systems, a variety of other systems, you make a small perturbation in them, and they return back to their normal, whatever that set point is. Uh, when it's far from equilibrium, a small perturbation could lead to a very big and very long-lasting change uh, in its overall effect. And one of the last key characteristics is history matters. Um, so if you think about a, a different type of complicated system, let's say a pile of bricks, and I don't mean a, a neatly formed pile of bricks, I mean literally out of a dump truck pile of bricks. Once the dump truck spills out, how the bricks got to where they are doesn't matter anymore. The only thing that matters is where they are now and what other bricks are around it. And if you want to find something at the bottom or you want to find a particular brick or you want to remove some bricks so the rest of them stay up, you don't have to worry about the dump truck or where the bricks came from or how they were made. All you have to worry about is the current state. But in many complex adaptive systems, they have a property of memory that's built into their uh, dynamical history. And you can have very long-range long effects where something that happened a long time ago has an effect on what's happening now. Um, so that's a whirlwind tour of what we mean by complex or complex adaptive systems. Awesome. So I want to then what you've described is kind of interesting that it's a nonlinear system. It has emergent behaviors and that that's what a complex system, how it sort of sets itself apart from a complicated system. So when it comes to modeling a complex system, where, where do we start? Is there, you know, is there an arbitrary start point or is it just, we're just going to gather a bunch of data and throw it into Excel and hope it makes sense. Uh, um, well, there was a revolution in how complex adaptive systems were studied starting roughly in the mid-80s. I mean, there was some precursor work, but um, you can think of it starting in the mid-80s. And uh, it involves uh, computer modeling of complex adaptive systems uh, that really took a break from previous attempts. So let me briefly describe the previous attempts. And uh, what I'm about to describe is used today very successfully in modeling mechanical systems, thermal systems, economic systems. It's what you might call a top-down approach. So the modeler creates usually systems of equations. Uh, these equations often involve rates of change, which are called differential equations. And these equations define either the behavior of the system as a whole or the behavior of a so-called representative agent, in the case of the economy. And you simply run these equations forward in time, and the equations determine the state of the system at a time. So this is a top-down view, by and large. Uh, in the 80s, 
saw the birth of a new modeling technique uh, labeled agent-based modeling. I'm going to use that term even though that there's other variants that deviate from it. But the whole idea of agent-based modeling is you're looking at at the level of individual elements. You're not trying to predict the level, the system level performance or behavior. And you are trying to model the simplest elements and the simplest interactions. And you run the models forward using sort of a random initial condition. And then you look for what global conditions emerge based on those interactions. So whereas a mathematical model, the top-down variety that I described before, uses traditional mathematical methods including proofs, like is this an optimal solution? Um, You know, can it solve problems of certain complexity or not? Uh, Is there a single solution? Are there multiple? That sort of thing. In agent-based modeling, you usually can't prove those things ahead of time. You essentially have to run them as experiments. So you have set up a little laboratory inside the computer. You run them uh, almost like randomized control trials. In some cases, it's identical with randomized control trials. And for every initial, for every setting of the parameter, you run 50 or 100 or 1,000 iterations, and you evaluate the results statistically, and then you evaluate whether or not uh, the system as a whole exhibits certain properties at a macro level. So uh, this has great promise and great power from a research standpoint. It's also useful in uh, uh, guiding policy or uh, things that are more practically based. But there's a really key trade-off because you're relying on this statistical analysis of randomly generated or simulated results. Um, So you can never prove as conclusively as you could with a top-down approach, do we have an optimal solution? Can this system ever work correctly or is it, you know, does it have vulnerabilities to breaking? You're always dealing with a realm of uncertainty and uh, also having to constantly test experimentally whether or not, you know, what's the effect of certain parameters, how important are they, and how does this affect what behavior might emerge. Interesting. So um, I want to maybe dig a little deeper. So when we when we talk about modeling, then what is what is the preferred outcome? Are we talking about something that is descriptive of a system or predictive? Because I think um, this will come out when we get deeper into the questions, but it seems like on one hand, a descriptive model could be useful, but on the other hand, like a predictive model is, you know, really useful. Like, oh, when, when will we see this pandemic? When will we see, you know, you know, how risky is this system, so forth and so on. So um, when we talk about creating that model, you know, which way, how do we go about it, basically? What is the outcome of that model? Okay. Um, so I'm going to talk about 
certain systems that I'm not an expert in, so uh, I'm going to apologize in advance if I get some details wrong. Um, but let's talk, for example, about uh, weather models and earthquake models. Okay, so um, let's say we have a time series of temperature, pressure, wind, uh, and other readings from a particular site. And let's say we have daily or even hourly readings or every minute readings, whatever resolution that you want. Um, it's possible to apply uh, statistical methods to that time series to come up with a prediction that says, okay, for the next day or the next three days or the next five days, here's what we predict will happen in terms of temperature and precipitation and wind and so on. Um, so that st purely statistical approach looks for patterns in the past, uh, either literal patterns as in uh, this comes after that, or in ranges of variation, right? So it might treat temperature as a random variable, and it knows what the average temperature is and the standard deviation, and it might make a prediction based on that. Um, but such a prediction would have a hard time incorporating information about um, climate patterns or weather system patterns. Uh, so, for example... You know, if we're trying to predict the weather over London at a particular time, uh, it might be useful to know what patterns of highs and lows and fronts have appeared over a certain time frame. And that information may not appear in the time series that I've just described. So what I'm talking about right now is using statistics and then maybe augmenting it with other models to refine those statistics to come up with prediction because the decision maker's goal is, you know, I'm packing for a three-day trip, what should I take? Or I'm going to hold a, a big outdoor wedding reception five days from now. Is this, am I going to be able to hold it or not? So those are the contexts that you're looking for a prediction. Um, Agent-based modeling and the methods I, used, I described before are not as frequently used for that type of modeling. Most of the time, agent-based models are used to understand what I'll call um, the full space of possibilities of the system and under what circumstances the system might shift from one regime of behavior to another that's really different, not just different by a little bit or by degree, but really different. So um, a while back, there was a movie and also a book called The Perfect Storm. Uh, another similar uh, weather event was the Superstorm Sandy. So this is a confluence of weather events, temperature uh, that coalesced in the North Atlantic off of the New England coast that led in the perfect storm case to incredibly large waves, very destructive waves. The superstorm Sandy case, uh, very destructive winds and rains uh, over New York and New Jersey. Um, while the weather models 
were trying to predict what was going to happen in those circumstances. Agent-based models and other models of distributed physical systems might be more useful to explore under what circumstances can such forces ever come together. So um, in, in less complicated systems, it's common for us to think about things canceling each other out. Um, so think about, you know, people going to the grocery store, uh, <laughs> a common theme in these quarantine times. I have a local convenience store that I can walk to. Uh, how do I know whether or not I'm going to get there when it's going to be super crowded or not? Well, on average, there's just as many people walking out the door as walking in the door. So there's sort of a canceling out effect. Um, at this particular convenience store, we don't have herds of people all showing up at the same time, and they know they're trying to show up because they're trying to get there in time, that sort of thing. Um, but agent-based models of herd behavior, which I'm a little more familiar with, actually do look at how local interactions can lead to that sort of higher-level synchronicity that causes everybody to rush for the door at once or everybody to rush for the exit or everybody to pile on to a certain meme or everybody to pile on a certain financial instrument, be it Bitcoin, or to, to rush out of a, another instrument, be it uh, structured financial products. Um, so the agent-based models that I've seen, uh, most of them have – the research goal and the policymaking goal is to help people understand under what circumstances can a certain class of behavior happen and what are the full range of things that I might need to be prepare myself for. Like, do I really need to prepare myself for a crash in residential mortgages or not? Prior to 2008, there was a lot of people going around saying there was – there could be no such thing as a crash in residential mortgages because they're the most stable financial instrument in the entire financial system. That model, of course, was um, – uh, how do I put this? Uh, inadequate to the system under study because it completely ignored uh, the structured financial products, the derivatives, the uh, mortgage-backed securities, and all the – um, all the effects thereof. Um, so in the current context of pandemics, again, this is not my, my area of key expertise. Dynamics of pandemics are modeled like crazy and using a variety of techniques, including statistical, including agent-based. Um, and, it's the dynamics of them are pretty well understood once the epidemic starts unfolding. The key factors are there's so many uh, important parameters that you don't know. You don't know the social behavior. You don't know the underlying social network dynamics. You don't know how contagious or fatal it is. You don't know the things that are going to constrain it as it unfolds. So there's this constant interplay between what do we know and how do we factor in what we know? How do we take an output and do something sensible and reasonable with it? 
And then how do we learn from what's actually going on to, to revise our models and revise our predictions? Interesting. So I want to maybe sort of change footing a bit and look at probability and randomness in complex systems. And the reason I want to ask is because there's been a debate on Twitter of whether or not the sort of COVID-19 is a black swan. Um, and then to reiterate, like we've heard, you know, the 2008 crash described as a black swan. And this really this question that comes up in my mind is, A, you know, how do we understand randomness and probability in a complex system? And B, you know, what are black swans? I think my, my only understanding of it is either in reference to something else like COVID-19 as a black swan or um, the sort of superficial or, you know, superficial popular understanding sort of pushed forth by people like Nassim Talib or um, sort of how it's used in, in popular writing and, and um, media. Okay, uh, this is a very rich topic. Um, so let's talk about randomness for a second. Um, the common intuition that many people would have about randomness it has, it relates to unpredictability and lack of patterns. So we think about uh, rolling a die or spinning a roulette wheel or any sufficiently rich system that has a degree of unpredictability to it. And when we roll the dice a thousand times or we spin the roulette wheel a thousand times, if it's fair, we don't expect to be able to predict what the next roll of the dice is whether we have a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand uh, items in our history, right? That very next roll is just as unpredictable as all all the rest, right? So if you roll the dice ten times or a thousand times or a million times, you're going to learn about the distribution of the dice, you know, two through twelve, but it's not going to give you any more information about what happens next. Now. A less than random system will have information in it. So let's take a, uh, a somewhat simplistic example. Let's say you are looking at a pendulum, and the pendulum is swinging back and forth. And in front of the pendulum, let's say uh, your cat is walking back and forth. So your cat is walking back and forth in a not very coordinated way and you get a glimpse of the pendulum as the cat moves right or left right so let's just say the cat is pacing um you don't know exactly where the pendulum is at all times but your mind or a computer system that emulates this can track pretty well the motion of the pendulum and even when the cat is in the way if you had to predict where the pendulum was going to appear next, you could do a reasonable job if you saw the pendulum swinging more than a couple times, right? It makes a big difference if it's a small swing of the pendulum or a very large. So let's consider swinging pendulums as not random or not very random at all. Uh, and then at the far end of this scale, 
let's let's label something random. It's like there's no patterns, there's no predictability, there's no way to learn from the past as to what's going to happen next. Now, in between, uh, complexity science has revealed a whole range of things that progressively look more random, look less predictable, look more disordered, even if they do have some structure to them. Uh, so there's a sub-branch of complexity science that's been called chaos theory. Uh, I encourage your listeners to go to the uh, Wikipedia page. It's got some nice animations and some descriptions. Um, unfortunately for the average person, the term chaos is synonymous with randomness, and that's not really not how it, how it works. Um, so think of instead of a simple single pendulum that you have two pendulums connected together, one on the end of the other. And you start swinging these back and forth, and let's assume there's no friction. Uh, this is one of the simplest and easiest to demonstrate chaotic systems. It looks very unordered, but if you can track very precisely how it all started and how much momentum was given to it, um, the behavior of this chaotic double pendulum system can be pre predictable to a large degree for a long period of time. Now, the more dimensions you put to this, the harder it is to, to uh, express this chaotic motion in the, in the sense of back and forth loops, the more and more it starts to look like an utterly random system that I described at the beginning. So, there's a lot of systems, including random number generators that computers generate, that are called pseudo-random. So they have the outward appearance of being random, even though they are generated not by, uh, you know, alpha particles or, you know, randomness at a subatomic level. They're, they're generated by computer math. Uh, but if you don't know the seed it's very hard for you to discern what is what that random sequence is. But if you know the seed and you know the random ge number generator algorithm, you can exactly reproduce the randomness. Now, this comes into play in the realm of cryptography uh, and in encryption decryption schemes. And I know we're going to talk about this later. Um, but one of the ideas of cryptography is to use random sequences to encode and decode information and you're only sharing information back and forth as to how to get that random key and to the degree that any random sequence any code contains elements of patterns that can enable somebody who's not the intended or authenticated user to detect that pattern and then to predict oh here's what that message says or here's what that message probably says and therefore, I'm going to act on that information. Now, um, the next part of your question had to do with black swans. Uh, I'm going to give a little plug uh, and point your listeners to my blog. It's called exploringpossibilityspace.blogspot.com. And if you search for the uh, article titled, uh, Think You Understand Black Swans? Question mark. Think again. Uh, I've got 
a whole series of blog posts, it looks like about 10, where I examine this concept of black swan and hopefully that I add clarity to it. And my basic thesis is this. As presented by uh, Taleb in the book Black Swan, this concept of black swan, which has become very common and very widely used, associated with sort of extreme predictability or beyond what we can grasp with our normal brains or our normal computers, I think this concept that he's put out there has done more harm than good. It lumps together a whole bunch of different processes and elements and ways of thinking. Uh, And people use this term black swan reflexively either as defense or as a way of pointing blame or a way of absolving responsibility when in fact in many cases if we use the right tools and we think about the system in the right way the extreme outcomes are not as crazy or wild or unpredictable or uncontrollable as we think. So what I did in my blog post uh, series is I proposed up to what I call 23 shades of black swans. So the number 23 actually comes from another book called um, Ignorance and Understanding uh, by Michael Smithson. And what he did in this book, uh, which was an outgrowth, I guess, of his PhD studies, is he studied kind of as a naturalist the world of uncertainty and ignorance and examining all the different varieties that there were and all the different ways that people, scientists, have of coping with them. So when economists, for example, think about uncertainty, they usually think about it only in in one sense, that is variability. So if I have a a stock that is on average going up 5% a year because it's putting out dividends, but its variability is twice as large on average as the S&P 500, its beta will be 2, meaning it's twice as risky or twice as uncertain as the Standard & Poor's 500. Uh, And there's a lot of people in the world of math and finance and economics that will argue that the only type of uncertainty that matters is this sense of variability. Um, But I'm here to tell you, and Michael Smithson would back up, that there's actually many varieties. There's a whole woolly rainforest varieties of uncertainty. So, So, for example, there's uncertainty associated with vagueness. There's uncertainty associated with ambiguity. So things seem both red and green at the same time, depending upon how you look at them. A lot of M.C. Escher's pictures are intrinsically ambiguous. Um, There's statements in logical languages that have indeterminacy, or they're not computable, uh, they're infeasible. Um, There's uncertainty associated with error, or... um, and varieties of error include uh, misjudgment or misperception or de- deception. Uh, so if you're a naturalist, if you're a naturalist, a natural philosopher type scientist, 
operating in the world, you don't have the luxury of limiting yourself to well-behaved types of uncertainty that fit mathematical models. I'm picking on the economists, but they're not the only ones. Um, it's really important, especially with regard to extreme events, to consider under what circumstances different varieties of uncertainty can manifest and the consequences. Because literally every variety of uncertainty has buried into it its own types of surprises. So I have not come up yet with 23 shades. I have come up with nine. Uh, and I'm just going to list them off here. I've given them whimsical names. Uh, gray swans, which are cascades in large networks. Uh, green swans, which are vicious circles, snowballs, bandwagons, and the rich get ri richer. Red swans, which are extreme adversaries, evolutionary arms races, and the so-called red queen arms race. Uh, disappearing swans, um, just named after Rene Descartes. Uh, Rene Descartes posited a diabolical being whose only purpose... It was all-powerful, by the way, and its only purpose was to, to defeat him in his attempts to understand the world. So he had to base all of his philosophy not on what he saw or experienced, but on, uh, on pure intuition. Uh, I'm just going to quickly get on the rest of the list. Out of the blue swans, orange trumpeter swans. I'll give you two guesses what that one's about. Uh, the swan of no swans. Swarm as swan, and the last one I have is splattered swan. So uh, I'll be happy to discuss any one of these, and we can talk about it in the context of the pandemic, which, which you brought up. But one of the very key things I want to get across is there is no such thing, and it doesn't make sense, to talk about a black swan event. What makes sense is to talk about events in the context of an observer, the evidence or beliefs that we that observer has. The observer includes a point of view and the resources for understanding, and also uh, the methods of reasoning. Uh, let me go back. I, I might have missed something here. Okay. Three things. First is causal processes in the world that create events. Second is a body of beliefs and evidence from the point of view of particular observers. And third are methods of reasoning about it. Okay, so um, let's talk about snowballs and bandwagons and cascading events. So... A pandemic, an epidemic, is an example of this. But so is a financial bubble. So is, um, pick your favorite, consumer fad or uh, pop star fad. Things get popular because it's popular, and people jump onto them in this wave of popularity. Um, the causal process involved is this, things that have attention or have momentum or have prevalence are more likely to get it. The phrase rich get richer comes to mind. Uh, so that plays out in many different points of view. Now, what evidence do we have and how do we interpret it? What makes 
these uh, swans, I call them green swans, what makes these green swans is if we start out thinking about them as so-called linear process, you know, they grow by the same uh, percentage day after day, week after week, month after month, we're going to miss this explosive takeoff. Things seem like nothing has happened until all of a sudden it explodes and the numbers are mind-blowing. Um, if you think about uh, snow avalanches, and let's say you're trapped with your family uh, on a snowy mountain, and let's say on one particular night, you know, it's already been snowing a lot, you've been in there for a while, you know there's a forecast of snow, you have to, de- you have to decide whether it's going to snow so much that the roof might cave in. So you want to estimate how much snow is going to fall on that particular night. Maybe you also risk avalanche, and you want to think about, well, what's the biggest avalanche that we might face with some level of confidence? Let's say you want to be very cautious, you know, with 90% or 95 or 99% confidence, what's the biggest avalanche we could face? Well, if you had those two tasks, ordinary person, they're going to be much more successful at estimating the largest you know, 95 percentile snowstorm they're going to face. And they're going to have a much harder time and they're going to much more likely underestimate the size of the largest avalanche that they might face. So let's, you know, play the tape forward. Let's say it snows. Let's say there's an avalanche. You and your family walk outside the next morning. You look at the snowfall and say, yeah, that, that was a big snowfall. But, yeah, that was within the range that we were predicting. You might look up in the mountains and say, wow, that was a really small avalanche. What's the big deal? <laughs> right? So replay that over and over again, and you'd have sort of the same experience, except that quite a percentage of the time you'd be wiped out by the avalanche because your estimate of it is so, so low. Because the intuition about what makes an avalanche large and therefore how to estimate it and what evidence you might have is not conditioned on a lot of experience there. So the methods of reasoning, a lot of times it has to do with common sense, rules of thumb, past experience. In the realm of science, we have mathematical models, we have computer models. Um, the events of the financial crisis of 2008 and even this pandemic were not beyond the reach or scope of our mathematical and computer models. If you were applying them and you knew which ones to use and you knew how to parameterize them. Um, so let's take uh, a really crazy example. Let's say uh, we're living in the world of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. If anybody's read the book or seen the movie, uh, some people come to Earth and say, hey, we are wiping out the planet Earth to make through, make space for a, a space freeway. And by the way, haven't you read the notices? You know, the Earth is going to be evaporated in six hours. So I think most of us, if that happened to us or we saw it happen and we'd like be totally shocked and this is a totally unpredictable out of the blue event uh, and nothing in our previous experience could prepare us 
you know, even if we'd watched science fiction movies, even if we'd been monitoring so-called uh, alien contact, right? Now, consider Earth-crossing asteroids that might strike the Earth, such as what wiped out the dinosaurs, or, or in previous eras uh, had Earth-wide effects of extinction. We know now that those events happen. We have some idea of how many objects there are. We have some idea from history how big those events are. We have some evidence, even fairly recently, within the last 150 years, of big events happening in in, uh, Siberia, for example. So we can at least scale in any given year, in any given decade, in any given century, Could this happen? How likely it is? How likely is it compared to other things? If you have the right evidence and the right reasoning tools. Now, moving back over to our current circumstance, um, there is a very large population of people who are expert or pseudo-expert or wannabe expert who feel the need to register their opinion on the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Is it severe enough? Could we have predicted that it was going to reach the United States? Could we have predicted that New York would be an epicenter? Could we, you know, how could we know at a certain stage that, that Italy would emerge and not Singapore, Taiwan, or Japan? Um, Most of the people doing the armchair quick hit opinions are completely uninformed by modeling. They haven't spent any time to understand how the models work, what the key parameters are, under what circumstances certain models are more or less appropriate, and what range of behavior is possible in those models. So one of the things that's happening right now is commentators are – um, second guessing. They say, oh, the models, they were saying 2 million before and they said um, 200,000 people in the U.S. are died and now they're only saying 600,000. See, the models are wrong. You can't trust them. And that's taking a, a, a predictive interpretation, which is really not appropriate for the type of models we're talking about. Um, and it's misapplying the, le- the lessons. The lessons of those models, I think the vast majority of modeling uh, on this pandemic has done remarkably well. It's to inform policymakers and ordinary people what are the consequences of different approaches. And the fact that if you take, for example, social isolation, you take shelter in place, the effect differences are two, three, four, five orders of magnitude. It's not 10% difference or 20% difference. The difference between shelter in place and no shelter in place. So let's go back to early March when, you know, some people are saying, well, you know, any event larger than 100 people is canceled and bars couldn't have more than 50% of the people in their location at any one time. So let's say New Orleans or Miami Beach or pick any other big city had kept those rules in place while the rest of the country had gone into 
shelter in place. Well, the difference will not be 5%, 10%, 20%, 50%, 90%. It's 5,000%. The difference is between having ICU beds available and having your ICU beds overwhelmed by a factor of 10. And so, unfortunately, we live in a media um, – I don't just mean mainstream media or even social media, but I mean how individuals consume the information that they consider to be credible. They can't really tell the difference between a commentator, a columnist, a blogger, a scientist in one field or a lawyer in one field who's commenting on another field who's saying things like, This lockdown is completely unjustified. It's going to destroy our economy, and therefore we should start opening up immediately and, uh, you know, only isolate the people most at risk. So Great Britain, for several days, maybe three days, was on that path until there was quite a bit of uproar and pushback from the scientific and medical community, people who specialize on this. And their models inform the decision makers that that could lead to the low hundred thousands of deaths in the UK and on the order of a million deaths in the US. And the only way to shift it would be to move toward more dramatically curtailing the interactions at a community-wide level all the way down to an, you know, essentially a family unit or household level. Um, so the uh, I am critical of Nicholas Taleb and the way he treats and, and he's promoted this black swan. He's not clarified it in the aftermath of his very popular books. He continues to criticize very heavily anybody who critiques his work. On the flip side, I think his communication during this pandemic has been very constructive. He has collaborated well with people uh, including at the New England uh, Complexity Institute, we're putting out very policy relevant models. Um, so I'm not going to paint him with a brush of that he's all mistaken. He, he's a difficult individual a lot. He's never come after me directly. Um, but I have a lot of heartache around the black swan concept and the way it's used. And I've made an attempt through this series of blog posts to uh, try to correct things. And uh, what, just to wrap this all up, and I know I've gone on for a while, um, each one of these color swans, I try to make broad enough to be generally useful and specific enough to know when it applies and when it doesn't. So I've written them in such a way that a reader can go through in any circumstance, and be able to say, yeah, this probably applies, or no, this doesn't. And then as I work down in the blog post, after describing the general characteristics, I put in some guidance about, well, how do you handle it, or how do you cope with it? How do you make the things that are extreme and surprising, you know, less surprising? How do you anticipate what's going on? So um, I hope that's been useful. Yeah, yeah. Um so I want to maybe – you touched on it and I maybe want to explore it a bit, which is the idea of resilience. So 
using sort of our current circumstances, using the response to COVID-19, um, it, it's been kind of sort of really interesting that the medical system has been kind of overwhelmed. The political system has failed or it's not failed, but, you know, not optimal response. But the telecommunication system, logistics system, they've all sort of withheld. They've all sort of, they're still operating normally, right? I could still VPN to work. We could still Skype. You know, I could still get Amazon packages and UPS packages delivered. So my question is, how do we conceptualize resilience in a complex system? You know, is, is even the term, a little more meta, is even the term appropriate? you know, resilience? Is it appropriate to describe, you know, to be used in the description of a complex system? And then, you know, what what determines resilience? You know, why, when we sort of examine the COVID-19 response, why has, you know, the, fail, the most visible failures have been political, where, you know, most of the successes have been very sort of quiet and sort of, you don't necessarily pick up that it is a success right okay so the concept of resilience is a very big concept uh it's useful so anybody who's a decision maker involving a system and they need to think about something that could go wrong and they want to bring the system back or keep it functioning to some degree when something goes wrong the concept of resilience comes to mind. Uh, the very first step is to frame it. What is the system that you're talking about? So, um, so I'm going to talk about two systems. Actually, I'm going to talk about three systems. And uh, when I'm done, if I haven't if I haven't touched on them, please remind me. So I'm going to talk about the White House and the political system around the White House to make executive decisions for the United States. I'm going to talk about the Internet as a whole. And maybe I'm also going to talk about a particular Internet-based system, let's say um, Amazon or Zoom. Um, and then I'm going to talk about the hospital medical system. So... Somebody involved in any one of those systems can think about what might go wrong, how might we be overwhelmed or swamped or you know, undermined, and how does the system adapt to it. So it's, a, it's important to draw a box around what system you're talking about. Are you talking about a regional health system? Are you talking about only the professional side of the health system? Are you looking at um, uh, midwives? Turns out in this particular pandemic, midwives are in really high demand because a lot of people want to have births at home, and midwives are uniquely positioned to facilitate birth at home, whereas the rest of the medical system is not. So if you're thinking about the resilience of the medical system, do you include midwives and massage therapists and counselors and psychotherapists? Or are you only focused on hospitals? What about the EMT systems 
that get people to and from hospitals? And what about the corners and the uh, mortuaries and the medical examiners that deal with people who die? And what about the public health system people? And what about the supply chains that support them? So the people that are involved in regional disaster planning tend to do the best job at this sort of thinking. So the people in the Puget Sound area that are thinking about natural disasters or even man-made disasters, so they're facing with uh, volcano risk and tsunami risk and earthquake risk as well as terrorism risk, they have to go through exercise thinking about the interplay between the hospitals and the EMTs and the police, the telecommunication systems, the local governments, and how to have how to preserve the the functional capability in the context of either being overwhelmed with demand or having degraded resources having the system flooded by errors or or other things. So um, define the system, define what sort of shocks or perturbations or disruptions that you're trying to define, and then you evaluate, um, I guess, There's sort of normal system response. So you have an abnormal event, be it volume or some crisis. How does the system normally respond to that? How much spare capacity, how much flex capacity does it have? Uh, So right now the Internet is functioning brilliantly. And furthermore, there are many cloud computing-based businesses, Amazon itself, Google, Facebook, Zoom, but lots and lots of other services that are not experiencing downtime, even if they're experiencing two, five, hundred, a thousand times more demand, or the demand is in a different pattern than they used to. So this is not because the people running those businesses are superhuman. They're not intrinsically smarter or more capable than people operating elsewhere. It's because the underlying architecture and the underlying resources has that sort of flexibility and expandability built into it. So uh, any of your listeners who are an early Twitter user, and I'm thinking back to 2010, 2011, 2012, they might remember the Twitter fail whale. At times, Twitter got overwhelmed with its volume, and instead of seeing Twitter, you'd see a static screen with a whale on it, and the whale said a little sorry message, you know, we're overwhelmed, please dial back later. Well, that hasn't happened, at least not to my memory, in the last nine or eight years, uh, because Twitter re-architected their software from the infrastructure on up, and without getting into the technical details, uh, they have a capacity to expand and respond to expand their capacity and to respond to very wide swings in volume and, and capacity without running up against hard limits. So every system has some limits or constraints. So you and I are talking over Skype right now. 
one of the constraints we deal with is a little bit of lag time between when I speak and when you hear my voice. So if we talk rapid fire back and forth, we run into that constraint. Anybody who's, who's listened to a conference call or participated, especially if it's crossing over a very large geography, is run into the problem of you're both speaking at the same time and then you're both silent at the same time. Right? So that's a sort of a so, simple social example of running up against the constraint of the system. Um, so to the degree that any system can be architected ahead of time to have either constraints that are so far outside of the bounds you don't run into them or constraints that are reconfigurable or that have backup mechanisms or alternatives so you don't experience them as hard boundaries is going to be experienced as resilient. Uh, here's a really simple obvious example of resilience in in human systems. Uh, so let's say you have employees, you're running a business, and let's say the business is completely manual. Let's say, let's say it's a massage business, right? There's no computerization at all. People come in and they get a massage. But let's say that every massage therapist has their own specialty, and let's say some massage therapists have sort of medical, physical therapy capabilities. And let's say they even specialize in old patients or young patients or patients with certain sensitivities or religious persuasions, you know, gender and so on. Um, Let's say your business is hit by an outage. Let's say there's just not an epidemic. Let's just say there was a wave of sickness and half of your employees go out on sick leave at any one time. Does that mean you lose half of your business? To what extent can you keep your business running at the same level? Well, to the degree you can cross-train, even if not everybody gets as good at what everybody else does, if there's at least one backup person for every employee that you have who can step in, then you've got some resilience to keep the operation going. You're less likely to lose customers or have cancellations at least to cover that that time period. Now, uh, I'm going to switch gears for a second, talk more. I'm first going to talk about the medical system, and then I'm going to talk about the White House, and I'm going to try to do that without getting overly uh, partisan. So the hospital systems, like many... Uh, I would say physical, but also technological or skills-based, competency-based, they have some pretty hard constraints built into them. So this notion of an ICU bed, intensive care unit bed versus a conventional bed, uh, the emergency room versus the ordinary ward, uh, wards that are specialized on cancer versus heart treatment versus stroke versus kids, wards that are specialized by gender. Um, there is some degree of flexibility between these, but they all have a degree of specialization. The people are trained, the people are licensed, they have certain procedures, they have instruments they work with, If they face a crisis circumstance, they can mobilize those local specialized resources to respond to them. 
So in contrast, the, the family doctor or the rural doctor general practitioner doesn't have any of those degrees of specialization. And if a rural undeveloped population is hit by some, you know, epidemic illness, whether sophisticated or mundane, if you just flood the zone with more general practitioners, you can expand that capability. You don't run into the limit. But to the degree that you have more specialized, more highly optimized, more technologically advanced systems, the harder it is to substitute things in and out. So we mentioned intensive care units. What makes an intensive care unit is the equipment, the instrumentation, and the people associated with it, but also the monitoring. When anything goes wrong with that intensive care patient, there's a service of care that says a skilled attendant is going to be there within X number of seconds. You can't get that level of responsiveness at a, on the ward or in the emergency room or especially in the waiting room or in a pickup hospital or in a general practitioner's office. Um, so to the degree that the system has highly specialized resources, that the dependency between them has constraints or bottlenecks or certain processes that have to execute in order for it to, to turn on or off, then you're building in um, fragility or, or conditions un, under which the system can be overwhelmed or can break or can malfunction. And this is a trade-off. Because under normal circumstances, we get much higher medical performance by having these specialized medical resources. But when things start breaking down, and I don't just mean pandemic breakdown, think about biological weapon attack. Think about massive tsunami that overwhelms the, the physical geography of the hospitals in the Puget Sound area. Suddenly, they're thrown into performance regime that is far from normal. It's hard for the pieces to know what they're supposed to work with. And it puts a premium on this system to be able to improvise its way, either on purpose or by accident or, or um, default, improvise its way into a higher level of performance, or at least it's some recovered degree. So the Hurricane Katrina disaster in New Orleans was very informative. And the people who've done the after-event analysis of that have identified a whole series of cascading problems and failures. Pre-event, all of the problems in the levees and the monitoring of the levees and the lack of backups and the lack of updating of the effects of having less marshland to the decision-making procedures once the uh, storm event happened, to what are the consequences of opening gates or not, uh, to the ninth, lower ninth ward is flooded, and what happens to the police in that area, what happens to the local shopkeepers, what happens to the local hospitals. There's a whole series of cascading problems and failures to some degree, there was improvisation to recover. Uh, so one of the most uh, successful aspects of that whole system had to do with church groups 
and other local community organizations that spun up capability more or less from the ground up very rapidly, whereas the official government and uh, even the police and other official departments entered uh, phases of malfunction, which tended to make things worse in some cases rather than better. Um, so planning for resilience, if you're thinking about just a, in a volume influx, how can our, our, our web-based service like Zoom or Skype or Facebook handle twice as much or ten times as much volume in a certain time period is one class of problem. How can our hospital handle ten times as much volume of a certain class of illness? Let's say it's broken bones or let's say it's infections or let's say it's cancers or radiation sickness or let's say it's civil disorder, civil unrest, and people are raiding the hospital to get precious supplies or they're evading other people. Each one of those things puts a different kind of stress on the system. Uh, and what it takes to be resilient to all of those takes on a very different character depending upon the nature of the system and the nature of the disturbance. Now, I promised to talk about the White House. Uh, so think about the White House as any executive control system. So my discussion of complex adaptive systems before kind of left out, well, who's running the system? Let's say you have an economy or, you know, a regional economy. What about the heads of the companies who are the major employers in that economy? Don't they have a say in patterns of employment or patterns of unemployment? Well, certainly they do. And the field of complex adaptive systems has not yet fully embraced issues of top-down or middle-down agentic control of the system. So I mentioned uh, swarms of birds before. Uh, what happens if some birds have radio control over a bunch of other birds? So they are like the head bird. And they happen to be super smart, and depending upon what they do and the way they move their head, they can affect hundreds or thousands of other birds. Well, that you may, you may still get flocking behavior, but the nature of the flock, you, can, you can't model it in the same way, and you can't assume it's going to behave in the same way. And by the way, it may fall apart in new ways that you didn't think about, especially if that's a crazy bird or an angry bird. Um, so. Uh, it's patently clear that any executive controller or any executive over a sufficiently large system does not fully control the entire system. There's no general or commanding officer of a sufficiently large army that completely controls that army, especially in the face of battle. The, the governor of California or the governor of Illinois or the governor of Maryland or the president of the United States or pick your favorite executive level, does not have full control of the system below. What they do have control over are some policy measures, some mechanisms, some things that shift flows or change rules of behavior that some other people have to then execute, which might eventually 
have an influence on the system. So I'm going to skip over that detail. There's a lot of details and complexity in there as well. But the key question in a situation like a pandemic is, what the hell does an executive do? How do they take in information? How do they interpret it? How do they draw inferences from it? And how do they make decisions that accomplish something that they themselves or the system, the people in the system view as desirable? So let's just assume for the sake of argument that the White House team led by the president wants the pandemic to go away, wants as few Americans to be ill as possible, and wants the world to be a better place. Let's just assume that. Um, so who do they have? What information are they taking in? What tools do they have? What degree have they actually been through this before? So uh, let me take a really small piece of the puzzle and, and amplify it. So very recently, um, filing for new unemployment has set all-time records. I think it was 3 million one week, 6 million, 6.6, and the following week was also 6.6. And the, the previous record, I think, was on the order of 600,000. So it's, it's five to ten times as large as the previous single-week record ever. And I saw uh, plenty of people who study the economics and financial markets say, this is a 30 sigma event. So sigma, uh, Greek symbol that's used for um, uh, variance, which is related to standard deviation, which is a measure of how dispersed a bell curve can be. So one sigma encompasses the range of, of 67% of a bell curve. Two sigma encompasses about 90%. Three sigma encompasses about 95%. Four sigma encompasses 99.9%, and so on. Six sigma is considered to be the epitome of quality when you're manufacturing high-precision goods. So to say a 30 sigma event is so far out on the probability curve that you never expect it to occur in the history of the history of the earth. That's how rare it is. Um, so if your model of new claims for unemployment was limited to that historical time series, your model would blow up. You'd say this is unpredictable. There was no way anybody could have predicted this. Therefore, as a policy response, we don't have anything ready because we've never encountered something this extreme. And maybe the rest of our models, which depend upon new claims for unemployment, start blowing up because this is so extreme. right? So that's how it can ripple through the decision-making. But if you take a different set of tools – and you say, instead of assuming that new claims for unemployment is what's called a stationary process, meaning the process, once it's in place, it doesn't change fundamentally. If you assume at certain points, it can change fundamentally, and there can be these discontinuities. You know, let's take our favorite bogeyman, the asteroid that hits the Earth, uh, economic activity will stop completely when the asteroid hits the Earth. 
uh, no amount of statistical analysis can encompass the fact that all activity could stop when the asteroid hits the Earth. Well, the event that we have upon us is the closest thing in a disruptive effect to the economy, to the asteroid, right? We have cessation of economic activity in a very sharp, not very dramatic way. And the very next week, the effects on unemployment show up. So it's not widely modeled, this the effects of economic discontinuity, although it turns out people who study emerging economies, uh, a fellow who cut his teeth in, the, in Africa, including Somalia, has encountered economies that turn, off, turn on and off depending upon war, civil unrest, uh, uh, other local things. If you grew up in that environment, you might have more tools to understand the nature of this discontinuity and how it might ripple through. Whereas if you're sitting in the White House and your only tool is a statistical model based on the history of, of new unemployment claims, it would blow you out of the water. So, Warren, Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just going to wrap up this part. Oh, okay. uh, the very unfortunate decisions of the Trump administration to disassemble the people they had in the White House, including the National Security Council, who had specialized on catastrophes, including pandemics, meant that you did not have those people in place. And I'll even extend this to the realm of the, the economic advisors and the Department of Homeland Security. I don't know about the Department of Defense. I don't know about the intelligence agencies. Um, but you've got a lot of key people whose job it was to model the world, take in signals, convert them into things that policymakers take action on, and they were gone, which meant you've got people who are then in place who are blindsided or they are blinded to, meaning they don't believe what they see or they don't believe what other people are telling them, and then they make policy recommendations like, oh, yeah, we can turn the economy back on for Easter, or it's fine if if people go to churches, 50, 100, or 1,000 people because they're churches, when everything else we know about that could lead to very disastrous results. I mean, this is kind of interesting that you bring up the political system because ultimately it seems in the United States that it's the political system at the federal level that has the ability to sort of determine <clears> – <throat> the success of all other systems. So, so for instance, the ability to provide ventilators or the ability to provide, you know, cash at a, at a scale of billions. So I guess what I'm like at a more theoretical level, like how do you determine the success of a complex system when nine out of 10 parts are all working together and exist in a cooperative mode, but then that last tenth, that one tenth, exists in an adversarial mode that is determined whether by intention or stupidity, or, you know, intention or incompetence, sort of to weaken or be adversarial towards 
those nine other parts. Okay, yeah, this is uh, important and also tricky, tr- tricky area. Um, so for, for what I'm about to say, I'm going to push aside incompetence. I've already talked about the effect of not having experts, uh, but I've got enough to say that doesn't involve incompetence uh, that I, I just want to push that to the side. Uh, and I'm only going to mention ideology briefly. So for some people, politics is equated to ideology. And everything that they believe in that should be put into place and everybody they support is to tied to some ideology notion. Um, in this specific setting, I only want to talk about ideology from the viewpoint of how it shapes worldview in terms of what you pay attention to, what you don't pay attention to, who you believe in, who you don't believe in, and on what basis you take action. So, for example, um, there's ideologies that strongly influence people in the current administration to favor decentralized private market actors. And they've they've made an ideology decision to guide policy away from government action based on a pre-existing belief that private markets, including price changes, including let's let the states bid for scarce ventilators, even if those ventilator prices go way up, because the free market will then make lots of ventilators available. So there's people who believe that on an ideology basis, and that translates very directly to Here's how we interpret the circumstance, and here's the policy recommendation. And conversely, there's people who have the opposite point of view. Well, there's, there's many different points of view. There's the, you know, only the central government can do these things. The only model that makes sense is the model that worked in World War II in the U.S., or the model that works currently in some Scandinavian countries, or, you know, pick your favorite model of, of central government authority. There are sort of libertarian ideology models that immediately switch toward, um, you know, dispersed citizen action. We don't need governments at any level if we just get enough volunteer people to do things and the right things will happen and we'll just keep these government people out of the hair. So uh, there's a fair bit of evidence that uh, extreme events, excuse me, confirm our prior beliefs. So there's very few people so far who've said, you know, I came into this as a free market guy, but I'm now really believing that medical care for everybody is the right way to go and the the government needs to provide it or vice versa. Really what we see is people digging in their heels ideologically to the extent they are ideological. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, um, I would not say that most of the U.S. political response has been driven ideologically. Some of it has. I've mentioned some examples. But a very large measure of what what can be classified as political activity involves coalition building, uh, winning positions of power either by appointment or by election or by some other political mean means and holding on to it. 
And very often, the way to do that is to undermine other coalitions. Uh, whether or not you agree or disagree with them ideologically or personally or otherwise. Um, so I want to narrow the focus a little bit and just imagine the complex system we're dealing with is a boat. So let's say it's Washington crossing the Delaware and the Delaware River is half frozen. And by the way, Washington and his troops have not spent any time in boats, so they haven't rehearsed this before. And, uh, Let's say we're not in George Washington's boat, but let's say we're in, like, some other colonel or general's boat. And there's a bunch of other middle-level officers and a bunch of uh, different troops of different uh, units. And let's say they disagree about who's in charge and are we going to go fast or slow and what happens when we run into an obstacle. Well... If there's political engagement amongst the generals and the colonels such that they're trying to win the support of the troops rowing, you can imagine scenarios where somebody says, all right, uh, Bob here, he seems like he really knows what he's doing. He's argued persuasively. We've listened to the pros and cons. Let's support Bob. He's going to be our captain during this uh, rowing adventure. Uh, but it's just as easy to imagine uh, no such settled consensus politically, and you can imagine factionalism persisting, and persisting in such a way that the people engaged in it are more concerned about the factional fight and who's winning and who's losing. Like, am I, am I higher or lower status than Bob, rather than are we getting across the river? Are we in greater danger? Have we lost sight of the other boats or not? So the unfortunate reality of really any political system, not just democratic systems, but any system of politics where that involve uh, factions and power and control among those factions is they jockey for position and the jockeying for position and the control may or may not have any positive relationship to the well-being of the ship they're trying to command. And there's a lot of people who are true believers in any political system, be it democracy in general or central planning or federalism or whatever <clears> – <throat> who uh, believe in the inherent rightness or goodness of the political system. So uh, I guess it was Churchill who said uh, you can count on the American political system to do the right thing, but after they've tried all the wrong things first. Um, or uh, democracy is the worst system in the world except for all the alternatives. So those are a little bit of cynical optimism about the effects of politics to, to lead to a good outcome. Uh, from the viewpoint of, of complex adaptive systems, uh, and by the way, my own area of, of research and investigation involves institutions and also innovation. So you can think of institutions as the norms and rules that guide what people and organizations do, give the whole society structure, and how do you evolve that to new and better institutional systems. So uh, 
one of the things we're finding in the in the current uh, environment is ways in which our political system, and I'm talking about now the particular uh, elected representatives we have, the particular people we have running agencies, the particular governors all the way down, sometimes they're working as expected and working as planned. For in large measure, state and local governments in the United States are doing a pretty decent job. Some really stand out head and shoulders because they have more capability and more experience in doing this sort of thing. And they either did not wait for the federal government to lead them or they knew not to wait for them and charged ahead anyway. Uh, We can look at the actions of the United States Congress in voting the two relief bills. I bet you there was a lot of people who studied the United States Congress over the last four to eight to 16 years who might have wagered that, no, they couldn't reach such a decision or they would pass something, but it would be a half measure because they'd never be able to reach a sufficient uh, compromise. Uh, There was certainly a lot of criticism about the um, post-2008 response by the U.S. Congress and the, the bailout programs. Uh, but I think they surprised a lot of people uh, by taking fairly quick action and, and taking action at a very, very large scale. So things could be dramatically worse by a factor of 10 or 100 had they not taken that action. So that's, that's pretty interesting. It's pretty amazing. Yet, I don't think it is prudent. I don't think it's wise. I don't think we can believe that we can simply let the federal political system or any given state political system just run and it's going to do the right things. So we can look at what's gone on with the uh, primary in Wisconsin, the attempts to delay it. Lots of other states have delayed it. Wisconsin legislature controlled by the Republicans wanted to force this to happen, not for the benefit of the Democrats. Governor, a Democrat, tried to stop it, took it to court. The United States Supreme Court overturned it. A lot of people ended up showing up at polls who were probably at risk, and maybe there was extra infections. And also, uh, you know, it's an act of voter suppression because people couldn't either go to the polls or submit their absentee ballots in time. So I think a lot of people have to point to that as a failure of the political system in this particular setting or context. And um, from what I can tell, I think our political system, our federal system, state, or federal, state, local governments, plus not you know uh, governmental agencies plus nonprofits and so on it's it's creaking along it's adapting now one of the most interesting things to see are institutional elements that used to be gospel like this can never change or we can't change this dr- radically that suddenly in this circumstance are being changed So um, one of the things that's prevalent in the United States that shocks a lot of people outside the United States is licensing and the prevalence of 
licensing not only for doctors, people of that stature, and lawyers, but hairdressers and dozens and dozens of other semi-skilled occupations and proprietorships where you have to have a, a, a local or a state license to do them. And one of the big obstacles in the U.S. to something like telemedicine was that doctors or counselors could not practice across state lines because of the licensing requirements. Well, Massachusetts took the lead, and quite a few other states are following, in suspending licensing requirements for medical professionals so that they can import doctors, nurses, and other healthcare workers, and they can also support telemedicine. So there are at least, I mean, there are many different examples of things that we used to believe things have to be this way, you know, work in the office versus work from home, um, patterns of decision-making, I mentioned licensing, that are being forced to change. We're forced to live with the consequences of those change, and we're finding out things work kind of okay. And they may not go back to the way they were before. Um, so what, what we're seeing is... Um, I'm not going to say that the pandemic caused these innovations. Human beings caused these innovations as an adaptive response to the pandemic. Sometimes these are accidental. Sometimes these are, you know, oh, my God, nobody's around to check on the licensing, so we're just going to let whatever people practice practice. And sometimes they're actually innovative responses. So the whole work from home, the whole uh, distance education, that's been in the works for a long time, for decades, if not more. But it's always coming up against uh, systemic and institutional resistance of the normal way of working things and the normal incentives of economic players and political players who put their thumb on the scale to say, yeah, we're not going to support that much distance learning here at, you know, pick your favorite Ivy League university because we have a prestige brand. And if we start operating like XYZ distance learning organization, we're going to lose our pe prestige brand. So uh, I mentioned uh, to my son, who's uh, graduating senior, uh, this pandemic and Crisis events like this create innovation opportunities, not just the, I'm going to invent something to solve the pandemic, or I'm going to invent something to respond to some pandemic-driven demand, but I'm going to take something that maybe already exists, like distance learning, like delivery service, like neighborhood information sharing. Uh, and I'm going to mobilize it in a new way that not only works in the pandemic circumstance, because right, I'm not facing resistance anymore. I'm actually getting positive feedback or demand because this is solving a need. But then it can li live on afterward and and become sort of the foundation for the new world order. 
And I'll just wrap this little speech up about innovation with uh, mention of one of my hobbies, which is studying uh, the history of England in the late 1600s, basically from the period of the Glorious Revolution onward. Um, during this period was the birth of the Bank of England and the birth of paper money and the birth of commercial insurance, Lloyds of London, um, the modern political party system, lots and lots of things that we consider to be foundational parts of the modern world. And by the way, slavery became uh, really industrialized during this phase as well. So it's not all uh, positive or good. Uh, but lots of things became possible during and you know, first took root and first became a part of society during this time period uh, that we associate with the modern age. And I'm fascinated by the way in which things took hold and the way they took root and flourished. And very often it was tied to some crisis or cataclysm or shift of the old world order and suddenly new things were possible. So the Bank of England developed as a response to the fact that, that England was having a hard time financing this long war with France, that England had tried financing wars in the past in different ways, and it led to uh, civil war and, and insurrections against the king, and there was a need for some other form of finance, and this notion of national bank had been kicking around, had been tried in Amsterdam and, and Italy, and England had been trying, believe it or not, national lotteries as a way to, to get extra money in addition to the excise tax. And the lotteries were doing okay, but they really needed a lot, of, a lot more money because France was a very formidable enemy. And England needed a land army as well as a, a navy. And that just happened to be the right thing at the right time for the bank. And it got just enough support, both from the crown as well as from well-heeled people who put their money into shares of the bank, that the bank established itself. And then the crown started depending upon the bank for revenue. It became a self-reinforcing process that really became the start of modern international banking and state finance. So our current circumstance it's really horrendous for so many people, really shocking for a lot of us who wonder when it's going to go back to normal. For some people, it's going to be an innovation opportunity. For lots and lots of people, you're going to be able to see opportunities. Maybe they seem small. Maybe they seem not very consequential, but it, it can shake up the world order in such a way that new things are possible that – once the pandemic is over, the institutional realm has changed and new things are possible. Awesome. So uh, I think we, you've answered a lot of questions and you've covered a lot of territory. So um, as it's tradition, uh, we usually end the show with, um, with our guests leaving us with something to think about, the chew on, the sort of leaving the audience with, with – a question in their mind to think about. 
Wow, I should have prepared for this. Let me think about what question I want people to chew on and question. Um, so I want to propose something that nearly all of your audience members and listeners can participate in. So even if you don't think of yourself as a math person, you don't think of yourself as a computer programmer, I want to invite you into the world that I have just been describing. Uh, I'm going to recommend the Complexity Explorer website. Uh, look it up at Santa Fe Institute. I don't have it in front of me, but if you look up Complexity Explorer, um, in that arena there's uh, lecture, video lectures, there's demonstrations, there's tools you can play with. Um, and if you have a little bit of computer skill, meaning if you have the skill to download an app from the, from the web, then I want you to encourage you to go to uh, a website called netlogo.org and download NetLogo. So this is a computer program that has some built-in software. Uh, I think it's if you go into the file menu, it's called Model Library. And it has lots of, of built-in models that you can play with that you might only otherwise read about. So there's models of this rich-get-richer phenomenon. If you've heard about social networks, you might have heard about the small world or the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. You know, every actor is no more than six degrees away from Kevin Bacon. So what's a small world about and how does that grow? Well, there's a model called small world that you can, you can play with. Um, there are models of chaotic dynamics. You don't need to program. You can go through, you can look at the model, you can look at the list. Once you open it up, you're going to see a screen which has the model in front of you. And every model has an information page which describes here's what it is, here's how it works, here's how you can play with it. And to play with any model, all you need to do is press buttons and move sliders. What happens if I take this number and move it from 10 to, to 15 to 20? Do I see anything different? So um, this, is, this is a way of tuning your intuition in a different way. It's active learning. So I'm, I'm encouraging all of your listeners, even if you're not a programmer, to engage in this topic actively. Like, I'm going to take the wheel for a while. I'm going to put myself in the position of a decision maker in this little toy world from Complexity Explorer and that logo. And I'm going to say, I think if I do this, this is going to happen. And then try it. And use that process to build your learning about some of these tools and models. And what you'll find is, some point in time, you're going to be at a cocktail party, you're going to be at a business meeting, you're going to be at a reception, and somebody's going to say, oh, hey, uh, we're just an organization at the edge of chaos. And you're going to be able to say, well, you know what? I don't think we are because I've actually played with the system at the edge of chaos. And here's how it behaves, and here's how our organization behaves. So we're just using this phrase, edge of chaos, 
as uh, as an ornament. It's not what you think it means. Now, whether you choose to to be the know-it-all at the cocktail party or not, <laughs> uh, that's your choice. Uh, but I think this podcast and the topics we've covered can help show how these things are relevant in the real world to ordinary people, you know, in the context of a pandemic or the context of financial investments or, or lots of other arenas. And the great thing about being alive in the year 2020 as opposed to 1980, is there's a great, wonderful system called the Internet and the World Wide Web, and there's people who put together these great resources, and they're available for you to play with and to explore, and I think you will find yourself at a whole new level of understanding. Awesome. Well, once again, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. That was uh, Russell Thomas. He is the principal modeler uh, focusing on cyber risk at Risk Management Systems. Thank you so much. You're welcome.